this all together because I know what Val was talking to you about ties in with what I'm going to talk about today. But I just can't quite get it together. Um, so I guess I'll let you put the pieces together as we move through here. I mean, some of the stuff that Val had was heavy, but then he cooked it down to being so simple. Just take God at His word, and you'll be okay. That's what I heard in the end. Take him at his promises. But you know, as we are sorting out the issues of life, um, just somehow, I, at least I make it a little more complex than that. And I like to write things and just figure it out on my own. And I think this subject right here is one of those ways. I'm trying to figure it out on my own and make it work. Um. So at the beginning here, I'll uh, I'll introduce a book to you, and I referred to it yesterday. Where is God when life doesn't make sense? By Lester Ballman. And this is uh, how many of you have heard of Lester Ballman before? Anyone here know who Lester Ballman is? Okay, not much. Okay. Um, well, if you Google him, you'll find his blog. He's uh, a writer. Um, he. Um, this book is actually about is about Solomon, about Ecclesiastes. How do you find meaning and purpose in life? Most of us face this question sooner or later, no matter how popular, rich, or successful we might be. Money can't buy meaning in life. Education can't teach it to you. Possessions don't come with it. You can't find it by getting married, nor by staying single. Losing weight doesn't help, nor does meditation. Religion won't fix the problem, nor will committing suicide. But life isn't hopeless and meaningless. You can find answers. Welcome to the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon was one of the, very, the few people in history who had the resources to try out everything that life offers. He had money. He had power. He had possessions. He had knowledge and wisdom. He had women. He had his own private musicians. He even tried worshiping idols. If he wanted something, he bought it. Or got it some other way. But he didn't have meaning or purpose in life like he wanted it. He wanted it badly. The book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's diary of the process he went through to find, find meaning in life. You'll be surprised at what you, you all tried and what didn't work. You may be surprised at his conclusion. I read this book bit by bit in a devotional in my devotional periods. I highly recommend it. It's philosophy, but it's scriptural, and God included it in His holy word. I really didn't get how Ecclesiastes was such a search for meaning for Solomon, and uh, so many issues that I've wrestled with and I've thought about. Solomon processed. His conclusion is very interesting. Lester Ballman is, is married to my wife's first cousin. And it just occurred to me that, you know what? Hmm. He might be an idea for focus. I would, it might be a try. I don't know. So if you ever get to meet Lester Ballman, it'd be fun to chat with him. Well, I don't know what my wife thinks about that idea. I didn't spring that on her. But we get ideas for speakers of focus, and they, some of them work out, some of them fall through. The other book that I would recommend to you is um, is this book, When People Are Big, 
and God is Small by Ed Welsh. And I um, I use this book as a, as a resource, and you'll find some of the ideas that I used in my previous sessions here in this book. Um, but it's if you're interested in more in-depth understanding of how people can be big to you and God is small, um, I reckon I'd recommend this book. Jealousy. The result of insecurity.
despite their kindness, Rachel and Tiffany were shot point blank and killed in 2003, along with a cousin and boyfriend. And it took three years to connect the murders to the then 17-year-old Christine and her boyfriend Chris, thanks to a tip. Though Christine had blamed her actions on Chris, who committed suicide, investigators believe she was severely jealous of the beautiful and popular young women who were supposed to be her best friends. While nothing ever came easy for Christine, her friends seemingly had natu naturally possessed, possessed the qualities she most wanted, and she was sentenced to over 40 years in prison in 2012. Now that's an awful story, and I, beyond words, and I deleted a bunch of the details. Don't want to share those here. And um, I actually needed to quit reading because of the murders on the news article I found. Okay, distant from us, oh, far away. But I wonder sometimes how far away is it. Jealousy is listed as a work of the flesh. It's in the list of terrible sins. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which, which are manifest are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, simulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of which I tell you before, as I told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty serious. There's a lot of murder stories that are caused by jealousy. Um, I'll just mention again, some of you weren't here, uh, saying yesterday we talked about uh, about, or I talk to those who have it, power, prestige, position. And today I'm talking to the have-nots who wish they had it. Don't have it. And we kind of can flip from one thing to another, back and forth. But I say to us, have we ever felt it? Have we ever felt jealousy? And help us to try to identify uh, someone you know, usually a friend, experiences success in their lives and you're not. And inwardly you feel a tension and not a pleasant one. Your friend can get better grades than you and you wish you could better them or you wish you could advance beyond them. Your friend gets a new vehicle and you inwardly feel a twinge. This next one got me. Your friend starts dating and now you don't have the talks that you used to have. And inwardly you feel irritated and lonely. I had three friends and one by one they started dating. Last one went, and I felt like I was left alone because now his heart went to her 
and he shared his stuff with her and not with me anymore. And inwardly, I was hurt. I just kind of ground. Several of your peers are more ongoing than you, and you wish you could have the attention they were getting. I went on PWTC back when I was young, and we had a group of us that went out to, you know, I think it was to Claire's house. I think he had us over. Some, I, we went over that direction anyway. And there was one fellow that was in the bunch, and he was the master of ceremonies. You know, he just knew how to get everybody to laugh and to carry on, and, and then he knew how to get serious, and I was this shy, quiet fellow here. I didn't have what he had. I wished I had it. <laughs> you know, and I was just waiting for him to slip up sometime. And then I could <clears throat> see. You hear and see your friends' close-knit family. And yours doesn't have. It doesn't feel like what you see. And inwardly... You feel a mixture of emptiness. Your friend is more attractive than you, and when you look at yourself in the mirror, you wish you could be as attractive, and so you feel a twinge of spite towards your friend. Or you notice your friend's new phone, and yours is old, two years old. So you start shopping for the equivalent. Or better. So I ask, well, what's going on? What is going on? Over a short period of time, the person with whom you were close to and admired had become your rival. Inwardly you hear of their misfortune, you smile. Inwardly, when they have a success, you frown. You feel that spirit of competition. Even without realizing what you're doing, you find yourself competing. You listen closely to hear what's going on in their lives. And every bit of news is material for your file on that person. You know, inwardly you think, huh? When you hear of their misfortune and you smile, you think that should bring them down a few notches. Or you might even give them a little sympathy and, you know, oh, sorry to hear about that. Well, but there's no way you're going to congratulate them if they have a success. That would make them proud, of course, so that's your righteous reasoning. a number of years ago. It's been, my goodness, it's probably been 12 years ago or more that uh, Paul Weaver, Christian aid Paul Weaver, was at our church for revival meetings. And he preached a sermon there that is still talked about today. And the title of that sermon was called Just Tracks. And in that sermon he uses an illustration of fox hunting how 
that um, he enjoyed fox hunting. And um, one particular day, they were out hunting fox, and uh, they found there was fresh snow had fallen, and um, they found tracks of a fox. So they knew that the fox had been there. They followed the trail of a tra- uh, tracks in the snow to the woods. They carefully went around to the other side of the woods. But before they, as they got there to the other side of the woods, they saw the tracks went out to the other side of the woods. And they repeated this process through grove of trees, grove of trees to grove of trees. That elusive fox was always gone. But for sure there was a fox because there were the tracks. It was there. He had been there. Paul says, said, <laughs> I remember this sermon so well because it hit home. You knew the fox was there because there was tracks. The same way it is with jealousy. It's very hard to pin down because it's so elusive. This His sermon was actually taken and transcribed. So here's part of his sermon. A brother from another state, another congregation called me, says Paul. And I am sharing this because it is public knowledge. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to share it. This brother called me. And they were having tremendous problems at their church. And it was such a struggle in the congregation. In his efforts to try to find an answer, he called me and said, I'd like to sit down with you. He came and sat down. And he proceeded to tell me all the problems his church had. In his desire to solve the problems, he began praying and seeking God. And he told me about a ministering brother of whom he had used to have a high regard. He had a high respect for this brother. And he always enjoyed when this brother preached. And he looked up to him and followed his example. He became very close to this brother. And they did many things together. And he found himself just really loving this brother. Now, all of a sudden, this whole thing changed. He was telling me, all that was wrong with this brother, I wondered. And he kept talking for hours. And this is what he told me. I'll just make it very brief, but I want you to get the picture. He said that in, in his efforts to find out what was wrong with their church, I was praying one day, and I'm sure that God showed me something. He showed me that this brother in the ministry had fallen into adultery. And explained that he had once worked at a house where this minister friend had worked before him. And now, about six years later, while he was on his knees praying about the trouble in the church, he suddenly remembered a conversation with a lady that he had worked for at that house. And she mentioned something about that. And when I, the ministering brother, were down in this room, the lady had said. And he told me, I am just sure he committed adultery. I know what it is. And he was convinced of it. Well, let me jump ahead a bit. I met with the minister, I met with the minister, Paul is saying this now, I met with the minister, brother, and his wife. It was not true. The man had come to me, had been so convinced that it was true, and I couldn't understand how you could love someone so deeply and have such an appreciation for that person and then all of a sudden begin telling me all that's wrong about that person I was seeking the Lord to try to help me to see what was wrong here 
The man was depressed and struggling. Something was wrong. Get the picture of that room. I showed you the picture up here. There seemed to be a stronghold in his life. I checked all these things out and told him that it was not true. And he was still depressed. I was seeing tracks of a spirit here. It was clothed in a holy garment. It had a very holy coat on. And I'm not talking about a physical coat. I'm talking about something that looked holy because it came out in a deep concern for his church, or so it seemed. And when I started to get to the root of that thing, it try, and trying to identify the Spirit, and all of a sudden it showed up in a way that seemed it was just right to have such a concern. Now you're wondering what that animal is. It is the most destructive of ungodly spirits that can roam the church, and people have hosted this Spirit. Paul's talking about the Spirit of Jealousy. sermon that Paul preached was uh, was so dynamic that it was a year or two later than the uh, planning, the ministerial planning committee had Paul Weaver preach the same sermon to the entire BT ministers meeting the whole body and I, I think it's, I, I'm of the same opinion I think it still roams among us, among our churches, it's destructive and it hurts us it hurts us deeply Christians are taught to be wary of jealousy for the very reason that it can be destructive, not just to the person, but the relationship surrounding him or her. Jealousy, a strong feeling of possessions, often caused by the possibility that something that something which belongs or ought to belong to one is about to be taken away. Well, the word can be used in a positive sense. I mean, God is a jealous God. But it also means that we're passionate about something that belongs to me, like a husband over a wife. But I'm talking about something in a negative sense. Often, um, human jealousy, to mean a destructive kind of human emotion, similar to envy. And envy is a desire of another one's gifts, possessions, position, or achievements. Envy is closely associated jealousy how jealousy works first of all through entitlement jealousy works through entitlement you may wish you had the circumstances of another but you don't you may wish you had the privileges of another, but you don't. You may wish you had the gifting of another, but you don't. You may wish you had the intelligence of another, but you don't. Oh, my overhead's messing with me. What did I do wrong? Listen to my other wish I had. Okay, it didn't get them on my overhead. 
Yep, we're at the intelligence one. You wish you had the physical appearance of another, but you don't. You wish you had the family of another, but you don't. You wish you had the well-behaved children of another, but you don't. You wish you had the business of another, but you don't. You wish you had the popularity of another, but you don't. And inwardly, you're dissatisfied with the circumstances that God has allowed in our lives. We feel we deserve something better. Jealousy is the pain that arises when someone has something you don't have, which you think you need to be fully satisfied. So if I'm jealous of someone's lakefront house, it's because I think I need a lakefront house to be fully satisfied. If I'm jealous over someone's athletic ability, it's because I believe I need more athletic ability to be fully satisfied. You know, when I watched a few of you slug those softballs into those <laughs> pine trees, I wish that I could have used to could do that at least. But then I thought, no, I'm so glad you could. And that was a lot of fun to rejoice with you. Or if I'm jealous over someone's fame, it's because that I believe that I need more fame to be fully satisfied. It also develops by comparison. By comparison. And comparison is a losing game. Even Theodore Roosevelt said, Comparison is the thief of joy. The thief of joy. Often jealousy develops towards our peers, those, to, uh, those who are in close age and responsibility as us. Often it's toward those who do the same things I can or wish I could do. You'll either feel less or better than. tend to compare to those who are close to us in age and responsibility. It's often towards those who kill. There's a sense where comparison is actually good and motivational. Having a good role model is a good idea. As Paul said, wherefore I beseech you, be followers of me. So I don't think it's wrong to have a role, role model be followers of me, even as also I am of Christ. The right kind of comparison can be motivational if we use it not to be self-centered. But sometimes comparison can be uh, it's probably one of those categories where God cre created it to be a good thing, but when taken to excess, it becomes a bad thing. The enemy can use it. Because um, envy can actually make you feel sick. So you've heard this expression, green with envy? Any idea where that came from? I enjoy finding different where different phrases come from. Does anybody know? Okay, I'm glad you don't, because I can tell you now. <laughs> it's like I got one up on you, right? <laughs> 
Did you ever wonder where the color green is associated with envy? It's because of a greenish facial tint has long been associated with illness, as suggested by the expression green around the gills. Since a person who is deeply envious is considered by many to be unwell, such persons are described as green or sick with envy. Of course, I found that looking around on the internet. It starts to make sense. Jealous comparison. Either you will feel inferior, feeling negative about yourself, or you will feel superior, looking down on others. You always find someone who can do it better than you. And Paul reminds us that we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring them themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Thirdly, it develops through insecurity. Now very few of us would say to ourselves or others that I'm feeling insecure. There's a few that will be honest enough to say that I do feel insecure. But most of us don't because it would be a sign of weakness. Insecurity makes us want to make it look like we have it all together. And we don't. Looks means a lot to insecure people. They like to look like they have a lot of money. Insecure men make it look like they have no fear. Now those stickers, are they around anymore? No fear. That was when I was a young fellow. That was big. Put across the back of the pickup windshield. It's got to have a big 4x4, loud, you know, high, jacked up. No fear. I'm looking at the most insecure individual. Flaunting his stuff. Trumpet, you know. Insecure women may try to generate laughter and be in the center of popularity. So I already told you that I was shy and inhibited and those kind just intimidated me all the more. <laughs> my my, my uh, thought to myself was better to keep my mouth shut and be thought of a fool than to open it and remove all doubt.
rising and, and um, showing potential. It's the goal of leaders to bring in along the younger, to train the younger to take their place. But you know, when there's a, a leader that's insecure, it looks more like a threat. He's going, they're going to overshadow my influence. And instead of... And these are the young men that who, who we've tried, we're trying to disciple, to bring up. But let's say they, if we've got our eyes on success and influence and all that, if they begin to encroach, we say, whoa, whoa, whoa. So ever slightly keeping the youth at a lower level, withholding advice, or downplaying their successes, or ignoring their suggestions, or overruling their ideas, what is that? I'd look at some older examples. We've got them here. And you older men, Val and Claire, you've you're good examples of this. You're, you're, you're showing up. You're, you're passing on bat batons. and I applaud that. But you're saying it's a temptation. And I, I actually feel it myself. But I, I want to be a secure leader that's not threatened by a younger one coming off. I want to see them thrive. I really do. I just I remember hearing David L. Miller from Kansas, older, revered man, saying these young people have ideas that need to be heard. And he was conservative, okay? But he, I'm just saying, it's a temptation. Now, how to overcome jealousy and envy? And this is a process. And uh, as I said, I've, I've struggled intensely with it. I've struggled with it during periods of depression. been angry with those who could outdo me. The worse I felt, the less I could do. Therefore, the more angry I became and the more envious. But I needed to change at some very deep levels of my thinking. So how do you move past jealousy, envy, and insecurity? Well, I'm going to give you some points now. And uh, these are just points. And I said we need a, the other day I said we need a daily tradition of meeting with God so He can correct our thinking. So it takes time. But number one is to give priority to what God thinks of you. The fear of man brings a snare. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord will be safe. So jealousy is an aspect of fear of man. We're looking at man again. And we're not looking at what God thinks of me. The fear of the Lord is safe. Insecurity is that fear of man. Jealousy and envy are the snare. Safety is found in putting more value on what the Lord thinks of me than what people do. Yes, it matters what others think. We need to have a fear of God first and then a respect of what others think. And I would say again, there is no quick switch to flip. It takes time. It takes a lifelong exertion. Time of meditation. You've been in, if you've been in the groove a long time, it'll take time to get it back out. It will take a disciplined effort. I, uh, I have found it most helpful to to meditate on 
Psalm 139 to understand what God's thoughts are to me. In fact, I've actually taken it and printed it off, and I have it across the top of my pegboard in my shop. And I spend hours in there cutting off parts of lawn furniture, and I got one of these cloudy days where it's drizzling, and I'm trying to stay above the clouds. I will look up that, and I will begin to quote. Do I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of... Oh, that's Jeremiah 11, 20, 29, 11. I meditate on that one too. Secondly, be generous with your praise. This might sound trivial, but it's not. You'll need to do something that you're not used to doing. And one of the best ways to combat jealousy is to privately and publicly commend and compliment those who you're jealous of, especially your rival. Be honest about who that is. If you're afraid of building up others, it might be because you think you will diminish yourself in some way. It's a perfect time to do it. You know, I actually find it easier to weep with those that weep than I do to rejoice with those that do rejoice. So, Larry slugged that ball and it went two thirds of the way up in those pine trees I think rejoice with those that do rejoice and hey, we have to think about this whose kingdom are we building anyhow our father which art in heaven Study of the spiritual gifts helpful. 
prophet, who is a discerner of truth, the teacher who is a student of truth, the exhorter who is an encourager, the administrator who is an organizer of detail, or the server, a helping hand, or the giver, a good manager of God's funds, or the merciful who is an empathizer and a feeler with the hurting. God has a place for us. No matter what our spiritual gift is, rejoice in how God has made us. And finally, learn instead of comparing. Comparing is a losing game, no matter how you play it. And you will end up feeling inferior or superior to others every time. You need to grow by being around other people, not compare and compete. And I think places like Focus Family Camp are just great places to do that. Because I think we're going to have a... If we're comparing each other among ourselves while we're here and trying to better one another, and I really don't catch that spirit here. But it's just a great place to learn. A great place to, to watch the interaction between families and see how they did it. See how they do it. Again, I just close with this uh, verse. We dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves or comparing themselves among themselves are not wise.